well, this is a nice venue, isn't it? This is great. It's actually the first time I've been here since we started meeting back here this last few weeks because uh, Lindsay and I and the rest of the family have been in isolation. Um, So very glad to be here. Um, Some very exciting things are happening in our house at the moment, though. We are starting our building work at long last. So we moved into our house in October 2020. Uh, So it's been a long time coming, and tomorrow is the big day. So there's been lots of conversations, uh, one with an architect, uh, one with an engineer, and now with a builder, about the integrity of our building. We've been talking about pad stones. We've been talking about beams. We've been talking about trusses. Things I really didn't know much about before, but I realize are very important. And so the integrity of the house when we do this building work, is going to depend on us making sure that these things that we put in, these new beams and pad stones and all these sorts of things are strong enough so that the integrity of the building remains intact, right? And when it comes to integrity in the Bible, integrity has a very similar meaning because it's about wholeness. It's about completeness, So when we come to talk about integrity, we're talking about being upright, remaining upright. We're talking about making sure that the structure of us, of you as a person, remains whole. That you don't have one part doing one thing with a bowing, a bowing, 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 let's go bowing, beam. Is that what I'm trying to say, where it bends? Beam. Um, or some kind of, you put in a pad stone that's not strong enough and the beam just starts to sink into it and the wall starts to crumble and the whole house starts to crumble down because in one part of the house, your integrity was under question. So today we're talking about the indispensability of integrity for the follower of God. Is your whole structure of your whole being given to God? Is it all working towards the same purpose? Martin Luther said, everything is a vain sham if God is not in it. Which parts of you are corroding? Which beams are bowing? Where could your lack of integrity caused the whole house to fall down? What cracks are you hiding and you're hoping that people don't see it? But actually could be the downfall for you as a person. Now we're not talking about a perfection We're talking about completeness and wholeness in your devotion to God, what you're about, that you don't become hypocritical, that one area of your life is different to another area of your life, or you say you're about one thing and end up doing another thing. That's different to making mistakes. So our builders are going to come, right? They're going to make some mistakes. And I'm sure, I hope, that they will then look to correct those mistakes and move on. But the the house remains upright 
because they deal with those mistakes. And for us, we, when we make mistakes, we confess and God forgives and we move on. But if we're deliberately in an area of our life saying, I'm just going to leave this here knowing that it's not quite right. I'm not going to give that any attention. Just kind of pretend it's not going on. We are in grave danger of having the whole structure collapse. In chapters 3 and 4 of 2 Samuel, we are questioning the integrity of leadership in Israel. We know a little bit about this kind of questioning of integrity at the moment, don't we? Partygate. He's been following that. It's pretty hard not to follow it. Boris and his pals over at 10 Downing Street having all these parties. And the reason that we are questioning their integrity is because the rule makers should not be rule breakers. And the people are watching to see, can we trust them? And here's the reality for all of us in this room. Your friends, your neighbors, your colleagues, your teammates, they're watching your lives as well. And they're looking to see, are they genuine? Are they authentic? Is there integrity? Between what they say as a follower of Jesus, what they say they are all about, and their real lives. We too need to ask ourselves, is our structure full of integrity? So we're going to work through three examples from chapters three and four, but before we do, I just want to make a a really quick case for all of us having these leaders like David and others in the Bible to be great examples for us right now, even if you are somebody who thinks, actually, I'm, I'm not aspiring to leadership. That's not me. I'm not aspiring to leadership. I think often what happens is we kind of buy into this kind of consumer model of church, and we think, well, I'm not going to be like some pastor, or I'm not going to lead a worship team, or I'm, I'm not a leader like that. So I'm just going to sit back, and I'm going to watch, and I'm going to listen. But this isn't really for me. Fancy a Malteser? A bit of popcorn? And we're just going to sit back and go, oh, well, that's, that's not me. I would say that every single Christian is called to be someone who has an influence in other people's lives. I would say that in some ways, all of us are leaders. Why do I say that? I say that because to follow Jesus is to be, without exception, a disciple maker. Without exception is to be doing the ministry of God's kingdom. Without exception is to be a saint, is to be gifted, is to be a priest, is to be spirit-filled. And so each of us have been called, placed in different places so that we can have influence, leadership in people's lives around us. Yes, some people are called to be particular types of leader. But lead, so we lead, those of us who have those callings lead so that all of us can have an influence and do ministry among the people God has placed us beside. There's one time in the New Testament that the word pastor is used, and it's in Ephesians 4. 
what does it say a pastor should do? Equip the saints for the work of ministry. We are all called to ministry. So when we're talking about Moses or David or Peter or Paul, it can be tempting to switch off unless you harbor leadership ambition. But don't, please don't, because you're all called. Every single one of us is called to have an influence. And integrity is indispensable to us all as we do it. Let me remind you of what's going on, okay? We're going to go jump back into 2 Samuel 3. And we're at this point where the king is dead. Long live the king. That's what you would expect to follow. But when Saul dies... David doesn't automatically take the throne. Judah, one of the tribes, says, yes, David, we see it. God has clearly called you as king, and you've been waiting all this time since the calling of Samuel all those years ago. It's time. Yes, it's time. But then the rest of the tribes don't follow suit. And we end up in this situation where you've got the house of Saul, even though he's dead, and the house of David competing to lead all of Israel. And you have Ishbosheth, who has been appointed by Abner, this great commander of the north, Israel, house of Saul. And then in the south, you've got the commander Joab, who's fighting on the behalf of David, the house of David, Judah in the south. Okay? And in both the house of Saul and in the house of David, there are questions over the integrity of its leaders. So the first one we're going to look at is Abner and his desire for power. So we are in chapter 3. I'm going to start in verse 6. It says, during the war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner had been strengthening his own position in the house of Saul. Now Saul had had a concubine named Rizpah, daughter of Ayah. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why did you sleep with my father's concubine? Abner was very angry because of what Ishbosheth said. So he answered, Am I a dog's head on Judah's side? This very day, I am loyal to the house of your father Saul and to his family and friends. I haven't handed you over to David, yet now you accuse me of an offense involving this woman. May God deal with Abner, be it ever so severely, if I do not do for David what the Lord promised him on oath and transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and establish David's throne over Israel and Judah from Dan to to Beersheba. Ishbosheth did not dare to say another word to Abner because he was afraid of him. Then Abner sent messengers on his behalf to say to David, whose land is it? Make an agreement with me and I will help you bring all Israel over to you. Good, said David. I will make an agreement with you, but I demand one thing of you. Do not come into my presence unless you bring Michal, daughter of Saul, when you come to see me. Headline that day was Abner pledges allegiance to David. Hurrah! At long last, Abner sees the light and goes over to the house of David. Clearly, David has been called to be king by God. 
isn't this good news? Hmm. Yeah, but actually, the story is much uglier. Abner was this powerful commander in the north, and he's been playing Ishbosheth like a puppet because really it's all about his power. He has appointed Ishbosheth, thinking he can use Ishbosheth to be the one that he becomes king through. And now he's made his play the one that is about to, he hopes, lead him to the throne. What do I mean by that? Well, he pushes it a step further by trying to take control of Saul's harem. Harem was the women's quarter. In the women's quarter of Saul's house, it seems he is trying to get in on because the man who took that women's quarters of the deceased king asserted his claim on the throne. Now, that wasn't an Israelite practice. Again, this is one of these practices of the nations and they're adopting the practices of the world instead of doing what God was calling them to do. But it was a play for king. Now, I hope you haven't seen too many people completely and utterly lose it. But Abner does that here. I mean, he erupts. It was one of those kind of no going back kind of explosions. Who do you think I am? And he says something really weird. A dog's head on Judah's side? What? What does that mean? Well, a dog was seen as a really unclean animal in Israel. And so if you were known as a dog, you weren't just a nuisance. You weren't, uh, it wasn't like a pet. Now, we love our dogs, right? Well, most of us. I love dogs. But for them, they were unclean animals. They were a nuisance and they just got in the way. He says, are you kidding me? Are you calling me a dirty traitor who, by the way, is on Judah's side, on Judah's team? Is that, what you, is that what you're saying? Is that what you think of me? Well, if that's what you think of me, Ishbosheth, I will be what you think I am. I'm going to be a traitor. I'm going to go over to David. Stuff you. I made you. What, what do you think you are? What do you think you're doing? I'm heading over to David's side. And by the way, I'm going to enjoy David's victory parade over you. He is raging. What is it that gets you angry? What is it that really pushes your buttons? I'm not talking this kind of like non-righteous anger. I'm talking proper, unmerited anger. Over the top, totally lose it anger. What causes that in you? If you can identify what it is that causes that, you could probably identify which part of your heart is not given to God, but to something else. Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Ishbosheth was left speechless. And all of a sudden, Abner is saying the right things. He conveniently remembers God's promise to David. But it's nothing to do with his faithfulness. It's his, it's his best shot at power. This is his second best shot at power. Ishbosheth sees through him. And that's why he's so angry. 
no longer a chance at the throne, so he's got this logical move to a powerful role on Team David. His heart's desire was power. He treats the kingdom of God like it's a route to fulfill his personal ambition. If you uh, are someone who has held, I'm, I'm sure possibly not anybody in this room, but if you were somebody who, who had held ambition to be the president of the United States, you would most likely have to say that you're a Christian. Because if you didn't, one in four voters would be pretty unhappy. And so you've seen hardly any presidents of the United States who haven't declared their faith in God, but have all been genuine believers. Have all those prayers really been heartfelt? Have all those appearances at church really been about their devotion and worship of God because they love Jesus and they want to give their whole lives to him? I'll let you answer that one. Do they appear in front of churches with Bibles because they want to give their all to Jesus? Now, that's unnecessary in this country, and actually often <laughs> it's the other way around. Better not be a Jesus freak to get this or that job. But sadly, like Abner used the house of Saul and now the house of David to gain power, people often use the church to get a place, a position of power to lead this ministry or that ministry. I've seen this again and again. I've even seen people use gifts like prophecy or preaching to gain power over people rather than to bring people to the power of God through their own weakness. And I've seen it all too often, both in leadership and those critical of leadership. It goes both ways. The way of God's kingdom, though, is to become weak, like Christ became weak to the point of death. That is leadership in the kingdom of God. My prayer for this church is that through our weakness, the Spirit's power would unify us together, not against each other, and drive Glasgow Grace forward. But that takes all of us to lay down our idols, lay down our want for our own power so that the power of God leads us. Let me ask you a couple of questions that might help with this. If your position is threatened, do you become angry? Or does position matter to you more than it should? Are you happy just to get on and serve no matter what? Do you come here because you want to worship God with all you've got? Or are you looking for a bolt-on to help you with your life's goals? What do you say you are doing for God, but actually is about you? Abner made the right move and pledged allegiance to David, but he, he had discarded integrity 
for his own ambitions for power. And he did it in the most dangerous of ways by playing his own game in the kingdom of God. If only he really knew what he was doing. That's Abner. But what about David? Let me read to you verses 13 and 14. Good, said David. I will make an agreement with you, but I demand one thing of you. Do not come into my presence unless you bring Michal, daughter of Saul, when you come to see me. Then David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, son of Saul, demanding, Give me my wife Michal, whom I betrothed to myself for the price of a hundred Philistine foreskins. Let me go on. So Ishbosheth gave orders and had her taken away from her husband Paltiel, son of Laish. Her husband, however, went with her, weeping behind her all the way to Bahurim. Then Abner said to him, go back home. So he went back. By the way, let's just deal with this weird thing that you may have just noticed about foreskins, okay? Um, So in those days, this is a total side note, not really going to tie into the rest of the sermon, but... It might just distract you if I don't explain it, okay? So, uh, in those days, like in medieval days where people used to have their heads cut off and those heads were taken back as trophies to count how many uh, lives had been taken in battle, in those days in the Near East, it was foreskins that they would cut and take back. Now, it's brutal, but that was the practice and that's how they counted the deaths in battle. And so, 100 foreskins that he brought back, he brought them back to say that we'd gone out to fight against God's enemies, Philistines, and brought these back for you while you've been fighting for them. Look, here it is. Now I get, now the trade is that you will give away your daughter to me for me going out and fighting on your behalf. So that was the situation. That was back in one Samuel. We explained it then. Um, if you want to listen back, great. Side note, done. Okay, remember how David was first called. Prophet Samuel has Jesse's sons lined up, but there were none there. And so they went out into the field to find the one whose heart was after God. And uh, David is brought in from the fields and Samuel anoints him, this boy at the time, to be king. Now here's how Asaph describes David in Psalm 78, verses 70 through 72. He says, he chose David his servant, God chose David his servant and took him up from the sheep pens. From tending the sheep, he brought him to be the shepherd of his people, Jacob of Israel, his inheritance. And David shepherded them with integrity of heart. Hear that? Integrity of heart. With skillful hands, he led them. So David was a leader who was distinct from these other leaders around him. Yet, he isn't perfect in this story. And we need to confront that. He lacked integrity in one very, very important area, his treatment of marriage and sex. It would eventually be his downfall. At first, it could be read that this was a really grand romantic gesture. He's trying to win his wife back. But really, even David is now adopting, at least in part, 
a practice of the nations around him. He was looking for a bride, a political bride, to unite the house of David and the house of Saul. Unification through marriage. Now in verses two three through five, we can see that actually it can't be that genuine because we've already seen that he has many wives and there's a, even a list of the children that he's had with them. So David has left God's design for marriage for the polygamy that the nations had adopted. One of the elders at Gateway in Poole, the church that sent us up to Glasgow to plant, took me aside before I went on to staff and he said, look, where are you most tempted? I'm sort of taken aback. He said, is it money? Is it sex? Or is it power? Whoa, <laughs> it's personal, isn't it? But invasive? How would you feel if I came and asked you that question right now? It's kind of strange questioning, isn't it? What gave him that right? I'll tell you what gave him that right. Wisdom. He knew that the integrity of the team, one of strength, required an openness and a vulnerability around the struggles that these things can bring and these things can take down whole teams, whole churches. If we were gonna honor God together as men and women of integrity, we needed to have a place to talk about these things in appropriate ways. But you might say, the text here doesn't condemn this. It doesn't explicitly condemn this polygamy. Is not the silence in this text condoning David's actions? That would be the criticism of a lot of people who don't believe. Well, no. Here's why. The law of Moses, taught by Samuel to David throughout all of his informative years, was quoted, and is also quoted through 1 and 2 Samuel, is extremely clear. Genesis 2, creation design. A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Deuteronomy has all kinds of teaching on monogamy, on how men and women should treat one another in marriage. So when Jesus taught that we become one flesh in marriage, and that what God has joined together, let no man separate, he was joining with the creation design for sexual relationships in the Bible. And of course, all of it was pointing forward to the ultimate marriage that we see in Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. David has failed to honor God's word here. He's failed to point forward to Jesus, to honor the law. He was a wonderful leader, but in this very important place, he lacked integrity in his bedroom. The result is a man in power mistreating women at times, women like Michal, who are used like a pawn in a game of chess. Husbands like Paltiel, Michal's new husband, who verse 16 says, wept 
behind Abner's convoy all the way to Behurim. Children separated from mothers and confused about fathers. It's children who are not taught the ways of God and have a legacy that is left for them that means they end up like Absalom, this terrible son that he has who becomes king in Israel. I don't know if anyone's watched Couples Therapy on iPlayer. Have you watched that? Just me. It's fascinating. It really is. And there's a moment in it where a couple are expressing how their marriage got better because they introduced new partners to the relationship and opened up the whole relationship. And I'm going, wow. Now, this therapist has been straight shooting. She, she is not going to mess about here because I know the stats, all right? I know the stats here. That causes havoc. All the evidence points to that being a really bad idea for the family, for society around that family, for the children and the children's children. You can't do that these days. So what does she say? Wonderful. Encourages it. No. It's one of God's most wonderful and beautiful designs. Do not take what is spoiled and try to fix it by spoiling it even more. One man, one woman, aiming to complement one another. I know this brings up really strong emotions. I know there are those of you who really struggle with this idea that God would even deny you some of your desires for people of the same sex. Or that maybe you've never been married. You can't understand why God would deny you that pleasure. To maintain integrity in this area, though, the Bible is clear it is worth it. Whole structure collapses where we don't give ourselves, no matter how painful to honoring God's design here. Even in secret places, even in your thoughts, run from sexual immorality. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said that you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with, with her in his heart. Be very careful. Let Jesus, your eternal husband, have the last word on this subject. He is worth it. So that's David. What about Joab? Let me read to you from verse 20 through to verse 27. When Abner, who had 20 men with him, came to David at Hebron, David prepared a feast for him and his men. Then Abner said to David, let me go at once and assemble all Israel for my Lord, the king, so that they may make a covenant with you and that you may rule over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away and he went in peace. Just then, David's men and Joab returned from a raid and brought with them a great deal of plunder. But Abner was no longer with David in Hebron because David had sent him away and he had gone in peace. When Joab and all the soldiers with him arrived, 
he was told that Abner, son of Ner, had come to the king and that the king had sent him away and that he had gone in peace. So Joab went to the king and said, what have you done? Look, Abner came to you. Why did you let him go? Now he is gone. You know Abner, son of Ner. He came to deceive you and observe your movements and find out everything you are doing. Joab then left David and sent messengers after Abner, and they brought him back from the cistern at Syrah. But David did not know it. Now when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside to an inner chamber, as if to speak with him privately. And there, to avenge the blood of his brother Asahel, Joab stabbed him in the stomach, and he died. No one could doubt Joab's commitment to the cause. He fought on behalf of the house of David with all he had. Ahab's convenient shift from the house of Saul to the house of David was pretty obvious, wasn't it? But Joab had given himself to the right kingdom, to the one that God had chosen to bless for years. Now one day, Joab returns from fighting again to hear news of Ahab and David making peace. What? The part of his heart that had not been surrendered to God, where there wasn't the integrity that it needed to be, was suddenly revealed. David had offered peace and security to Abner. Forgiveness had been extended. They were working towards unity, even where Abner's motives were questionable. But Joab is appalled because he remembers the battle at Gibeon and he remembers what he did to his brother Asahel. Now here's a moment where the walls come crumbling down. It's all been hidden before, but the bitterness that he had, that had taken hold in him and was starting to corrode him from the inside out had now caused the whole house to come down. Joab had looked like he was doing the right thing up until this point. But now, because he had been bitter, it comes tumbling down. And he avenges his brother's death and kills Ahab, not in battle, but by tricking him to come into a private room with him and stabbing him. Now, throughout the Old Testament and throughout 1 and 2 Samuel, we see this glorious little word coming up, hesed. God's hesed love. It means that he is faithful even when we're not faithful. He keeps loving us. He loves us because he loves us. And here Joab is unwilling to follow God's hesed love for him and for Israel. It was too much for him. One thing I can't do, one thing I won't do is forgive this man. Not after what he did to my brother. He had let bitterness grow. It had gone unchecked in his heart. And in doing so, says unwittingly, that part of his heart had been given to the enemy, to hatred rather than God's way of love. Do you know 
that when you refuse to forgive or let bitterness grow, you are in some way turning over that part of you to the enemy. Remember, Paul says, a little yeast leavens the whole dough. Joab had still been in the right kingdom, doing the right stuff, but when bitterness is left unchecked, it acts like a growing crack under the plasterwork, ready to take the whole thing down. Forgiveness is not pain-free. Forgiveness is hard to do. You ever had a tooth removed? I needed to get one removed. My wisdom tooth, it was causing a bit of issues for me. It wasn't sore really at the time, maybe a bit annoying. But I'll tell you what, when they took that out, oh, that was sore. They had certainly touched a few nerves. And the same is true often when we need to remove the bitterness in our hearts. When we rip it out, it can be terribly painful. We often think of bitterness as simply for the benefit of the one who needs forgiven. But when we forgive, it does not benefit just one party. It benefits both. You are freed from bitterness when you forgive someone who has done something to you that they shouldn't have. We need freed from bitterness through genuine, heartfelt forgiveness. Imagine this. Imagine being in Rome, first century. And someone you know has got hold of this gospel, Mark's gospel, this story about this man and a far-flung part of the Roman Empire. You've heard about it. You've heard it's causing some excitement. And you're in the room listening to someone reading it out. You hear about the miracles of this Jewish man. And you hear about his sacrifice and his love. You're amazed that this Jew, this one from this random place in the empire had done such incredible things. You'd heard that even when he was being crucified, that he had said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And then as the crescendo of this gospel being read out, there is someone spoken of who is just like you, a Roman soldier, who looks up at this dead body and says, surely this man was the son of God. The hesed love of God led to the cross so that Jesus, who is God, could forgive his enemies. Oh, the integrity of Jesus who said, love your enemies, and then went to the cross to die for his enemies. That's integrity. And through that integrity, we can also be people of integrity, but only through that. 
If you're wondering, how on earth do I find the strength to have genuine wholeness, worship for God, make myself all about him, and to not have areas that become hypocritical so that the integrity is questioned? Jesus. Only through your love and intimacy with Jesus. Only through joining in your life to Jesus in every single way. Here are a few questions to ask yourself. Has a previous experience caused you to be more guarded and less vulnerable? Is there someone you find yourself avoiding, never mind loving? Have you found yourself saying things like, this or that person is not good for me, I'm going to stop spending time with them? Please, if the answer is yes to any of those questions, watch out for what really is controlling you. Watch out for the cracks underneath. Integrity for the believer is to keep giving every part of your heart to Jesus' ways, even when it's painful. And ultimately, when we do that, we are denying the ways of hesed in our own lives. We're denying the way of Jesus. And Jesus said that that was the most important command of them all, to love God and to love people. Integrity is indispensable. People are watching. We are not called to have to be perfect. That's where hypocrisy comes when we think we do. No, no. We are called to give all of ourselves to God. And when we make mistakes, we turn to him and say, Lord, forgive me, would you help me in this area or that? But we do not become hypocrites. Some of us need to ask ourselves, why am I really doing this or that? Am I more concerned about my own power rather than trusting in the power of God? If that's you, I just want to encourage you to go for prayer this afternoon. Others have given themselves to lust and sex instead of cherishing our ultimate marriage in Christ and trusting God's design for marriage and family. Go to God in prayer. Some of us have let bitterness go unchecked. And the structure of our life needs some attention. Go to God 